Open your Bibles with the first John chapter 3. We've usually started with John 3, but I'm going to skip over that to, for the sake of, of time this morning. Because what we're talking about is this message that the, for God so loved, God loves you. And our signature verse is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You can put that up there, First John 3. For God so loved, go back to one, verse 1. There you go. So that's what we've been talking about. The, the, the reality that God loves... No, no, go back to 1 John chapter 3. There you go. Stay there. We've been talking about the fact that God loves us. And, 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 and you know, again, if we've said this before every time, that if I asked for a show of hands, everyone in here that's awake would raise their hand if they said, do you know God loves you? But we looked at a verse in 1 John chapter 4, we're not going to go there, that says that we can... We, it's not just to, to believe it, but we have to know it. So we can believe things we don't really know by experience. And God wants you to experience His love for you. He wants you to taste His love for you because once you get a taste on His love for you, I have a, I have, I have a warning for you. It ought to come with a warning level. It, it, it's, it's habit forming. In fact, you can get hooked on God's love for you. And that's what He wants you to be. It's called passion for the Lord. It's called the love of the Lord. And so God wants us to the church, I believe, and it's almost everywhere I go now, I'm hearing this. So I really believe this is a theme that the Spirit of God has for the church today because we've learned about God's holiness. We've learned things. That we're not walking in all of it. We know that we're supposed to love one another. We try our best to love one another, but you can't give something you haven't received. And what we began to look at last week is this love is at a different level. And that's why I wanted to start here. This is John, the apostle who knew God loved him, who knew Jesus loved him. He had a revelation of that love. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Stay there. We talked about last time, what that's literally saying is, first of all, behold. And I, I brought that kind of into modern day language, because we don't speak with behold. It's wow! Whoa, wow! Look at what manner of love the Father's bestowed. The word manner of love literally in the Greek means what foreign type of love. We talked about the fact that, that if you've ever gone to a foreign country, you notice, you, you realize you're not, you're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. You're, you're somewhere else now. And, and things are different. Well, wait a minute. Uh, the language is different because I don't read, can't read the signs. I can't understand what they're talking about. I don't know how to order my coffee in the morning. You know, you know, little things you take for granted. Suddenly you realize, well, wait a minute, this is different. Then you discover they have different customs. We've been on mission trips, places where we're told ahead of it, make sure you don't dress it certain ways you might at home because it's offensive to them. So you need to know their customs. I remember the first time I ever preached uh, in, in Mexico, uh, the, the translator told me, be careful. I remember using some kind of, oh, I know what he is. I said, well, it's like the cat got your tongue and he kind of looked at me. Because what he realized, and he explained to me afterwards, I could have said that in Spanish, but it would mean something totally different. It's an idiom. And so, so when you're in a foreign nation, you realize, wait a minute, everything's different here. I've got to learn what the customs are. I've got to learn the language. And so that's literally what that word means. The love that God has shown to us is a foreign type of love. And I explained to you that the word agape, or agapeo, which is the, um, the noun, that word was very seldom used by the Greeks. So the Spirit of God taught, chose that word to use to, dis, to define it by God's love. 
And so when Jesus tells his disciples, commands us to love one another, that's the love he's talking about. But this says God has bestowed this, and what we're learning is what this kind of love is. And the first thing we saw last week is it's a foreign kind of love. So you can't take your experience with people's love for you, your parents' love for you. You can't use that, because there were three other Greek words we talked about that refer to different types of love that we all experience in our normal everyday life. But this is different. This is different. And God chose this kind of love to bestow upon us, and the measure of that is that we should be called children of God. Now we're going to begin to go from that today. We're beginning to talk about the measure of that love. So go Romans chapter 5, because what we also talked about last time is that you can't see, when somebody tells you, you know, I love you, you can't see inside their heart to know whether that's true or not. Or if it's true, how true is it? How much did they love you? I really love you. You know, it's the, a young couple falls in love and, and the young man takes her to dinner and says, you know, oh, I just love you so much. You know, and if she's smart, she's going to say, okay. I hear your words. I want to watch the evidence of that love by where you take me to dinner. So if you take me to McDonald's, now, if that's the best you can afford, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but gentlemen, here's an insight for you. Women want to hear the words, but they want to see the actions that me- demonstrate that you mean what you say. Because men are very good at saying something that they don't fully mean. I'm going to get a little aside here, but there's a place in, John, in the Gospel of John where Jesus, I think it's in chapter 14, where, where Jesus tells, tells, you know, uh, tells his disciples that, they should, that, that if they love him, they will keep his commandments. And before that, he's told them he loves them. And when I was, in, actually it was in the middle of, I think, of first service teaching on this when it suddenly dawned on me, it was, it's kind of like a young couple that's sitting across the dinner table in this beautiful romantic meal, you know, and, and she says, he says to her, I love you. You're so beautiful. I just love you, you know. And she's just feeling all warm and gooey inside. And she says back to him, and I love you. And eventually what she figures out is they don't mean the same thing. When he says, I love you, he means I want you. You're pretty, you're attractive. I want you for my own. And I want to be able to enjoy you, spirit, soul, and body. I want you. That's what he means by I love you. When she says I love you, she means I'm giving myself to you. To the exclusion of everybody else. And see, they go into a marriage with a major disconnect and not know it because they're both saying I love you. And Jesus is saying that to us. He says, I love you and I'm expecting you to love me and this is my commandment that you love one another, that, you, that if you love me, you'll keep my words. So the, the evidence of your love, you can't, you can't love God by keeping His commandments, but the evidence of our love for Him is how we act towards Him. And so what I'm, the point here is that you can't see what's in someone's heart because we don't have a little window here, and it's probably a good idea, that we don't have a little, or a little meter in there, a truth meter, you know, a love meter, but we do, and it's our actions. The evidence of what we believe and what we're feeling, what we believe inside, is what we do. And I'm saying that because God's evidence of what He what He feels towards us is in what He did. 
Romans chapter 5. This is where we ended last time. Romans chapter 5, verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, but yet perhaps for a good one someone dare die. I skipped a bunch of verses, that we, a number of verses we went through last week for time. So what he's talking about here is this is what God did for us. He talks about he loves us so much that he's died for us. And the point here is, is to get into our thinking is that it, we would scarcely give our life up for somebody that we judge as righteous. Yet perhaps for a good one, man, someone might dare. Someone might look at a good person and say, well, they're worth more than me and I'll make the ultimate sacrifice and I'll give my life. That's what the end of the Charles Dickens uh, novel, A Tale of Two Cities, is a man makes that decision. It's a far, far better thing. Why don't we go there? Okay. But, but, but the Holy Spirit's saying here is we could kind of understand that someone might say, look, I'll give my life for somebody else because they're really worth saving. They're really worth living. You know, I'm old now, and I believe there have been parents that have done this. You know, for some reason, they had to choose between them and their children, and they gave their life up so that their children could live. Maybe it was an organ or something like that. They gave themselves up because their younger child was younger. They were at a more valuable life because they lived their life. So my point is, we could kind of understand that. Verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love towards us. Now, I finish with this position this, this, this uh, point. And then second service, I had uh, uh, Gary Johnson, one of our elders, come running up to me because he got it. He says, do you realize demonstrates is not in the past tense? I said, yeah, that's what I just said. In the Greek, it's a continuous tense. It means it's an ongoing, continuous thing. So God didn't demonstrate his love towards us 2,000 years ago. He continues to demonstrate his love towards us. We talked Wednesday night a little bit about this in terms of the Spirit of God. God. God does not live in time. So for God, everything's now. So when God looks at you, He sees Jesus on the cross still. He sees that blood still flowing for you. He still sees Jesus being raised from the dead for you. God demonstrates His love for us. That means God, the word demonstrate means to prove it. You ever had a, a salesman come to your door selling vacuum cleaners or something like that? Uh, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and what they do is they're always carrying a s- sample with them, aren't they? So they'll come into your house and they'll say, you know, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread is better than one you have. And they'll take some dirt and pour it all over your carpet. You know, and then they'll take your sweeper carpet, your carpet sweeper or your vacuum and go over it. And then they'll take, then they'll take theirs and go over what yours just went over, and then they'll open and show you all the dirt that their better product got. They're demonstrating. They're not just asking you to take their word for it. That, you know, you need to throw out your old vacuum cleaner because mine, the one I'm selling is better because, yeah, okay, I, that's just words. But they demonstrated. They proved their words by the acts that they did. That's what demonstrate. God demonstrates His own love towards us. Remember, His own love is a different kind of love. That's what we're learning what it means towards us. And this is it. This is how He demonstrated it. Because verse 7 says that we could understand somebody giving their life up for somebody that was a wonderful person. You know, maybe Mother Teresa or Albert Schweitzer or somebody who's a great humanitarian so that because their life had a value. But here's Jesus. We're talking about from the Father's perspective. His only, be- his only begotten Son, His beloved Son, and He chose to give His life up for yours. And that's what Paul's saying is the demonstration, the tangible evidence 
of how much God loves you. That while we were still sinners, now we can look at that word and say it's kind of seems watered down to it. Sinners, that word implies rebellious, and later on we're not going to go that far. Enemies. Paul goes on to say, while we were his enemies. Now, how many people give their life up for their enemy? They may give their life up fighting their enemy, but not for their enemy, to save their enemy. You may say, well, I was never an enemy of God. Yes, you were. Because we were all in rebellion against God. Rebellion is not, you know, just what a, a, a teenager might do. Rebellion is when you decide to live your own, when you think you have a right to your own life. That's what happened in the garden. They decided to establish their own kingdom. And that's what Satan was trying to get them to do, just what he did. And so when we, when we, when we assert our rights, I'll, I'll show you how it is. If you just walk around with the attitude, it's your body, you can do with it what you want. You can have tattooed on there what you want. You can put into it what you want. I hit everybody. You can put in there what you want. You can take it where you want to and use it how you want to. But the Word of God says your body's not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify, glorify God. Not your favorite football team or baseball team. Glorify God with your body. And that's the Christians. When we're going to do things our way and assert our own way, when we just don't worship God, that's rebellion. Because we're, we're, we're denying who He is. Everything we are, the very life that is in you, the very life, I'm not talking about eternal life, the very animal life itself, the very life itself that's in us, He created. We can't create life. He created it and He gave it to you. He entrusted it to you. He entrusted it to me. Getting quiet in here. All I'm trying to point out is why we were sinners. Christ died for us. So the evidence of God's love for us, the demonstration of what's in His heart, because we can't look in His eyes, we can't hear the tone of His voice, we can't feel His hand on our shoulders unless something supernatural happens, but God proved to us His love for us in that while we were still sinners, that's written for people that never accepted Christ. Because our signature verse is, For God so loved the world... Everyone that's in hell right now, everyone that will ever go, everyone that ever rejected Christ, God still gave Christ up for them to give them that opportunity, even though they rejected Him. Knowing they were going to reject Him, He still did it for them. He still did it for them. All right. Now we're going to begin to look at this, and we're going to build on this, because what we're looking at is the evidence from the Bible of just how far God went for you and why He did this. Because I was saved, and I think, I suspect many of us were, with the idea that Jesus went to the cross to die for me so I don't have to go to hell. And if that's the only reason He went to the cross for me, that's worth it. I said, that's worth it to not go to hell. (laughs) Unless you're still interested in going. All right. Ephesians chapter 2. And this is... This is a preacher or teacher's dangerous territory because they're so rich in here. I've got to be disciplined here. What he's just said about at the end of chapter 1 is about that we would have a revelation of the exceeding greatness of the power 
that God displayed towards us when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. That he would, we would have a revelation, listen carefully, of the exceedingly great power that God displayed towards us, towards the church, that he gave towards the church when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him with him in heavenly places. And now he's going to switch to us. And you, he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Let's look at this verse and take it apart. We were... Go back to verse 1. He made us alive who were dead. When someone's dead in a hospital... They unplug all the plugs, they pull out all the tubes, they disconnect everything, because in the, from man's understanding and man's medical ability, it's over. There's nothing more that can be done. Because once they're dead, they're dead. And that's where you and I were in our sins and transgressions or trespasses. Our rebellion, our sin against God, one sin against God that Adam committed caused him to be separated spiritually from God. One sin. You get that? It wasn't that God looked at all the things he did. One sin. The moment he disobeyed God, he was separated spiritually from God. If you read those verses in the Hebrew, when God tells them, if you eat of that tree, you'll die, in the Hebrew it says, in dying you will die. So it implies two deaths. It implies a physical death in Adam's hap- case, it didn't happen for another n- eight or nine hundred years. But it also implies a spiritual death. Spiritual death means to be separated from the source of life. If you've got a hair dryer that you used this morning, and then while you were using it, you walked too far away from the wall, and it pulled out, it died. It stopped functioning. Because it was pulled away from the source of power. And when, you, when we sin, we pull away, disconnect from the source of life, spiritual life. And although there's life in us, it's not a spiritual life. That's why the world cannot understand the things of God, because spiritually they're dead. They can't see the things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. And that's where we were. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. Now verse 2. And He made us alive. All right. And we once walked in these according to the course of this world. The world's on a course. It's a flow, like a flow of a river. And we were going along with this, according, and it's flowing. This world is on a course, uh, going in a direction, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. So there's a spirit that's working behind the disobedience of the world. Verse 3 among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Sinners sin because it's our nature to sin. That was their nature. That was our nature. We sin because it was our nature. We were born with that nature that came from Adam in his sin. And we were by nature children of wrath, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the judgment of God, just as the others. And this is what I wanted to get to. This is the most important two words in the Bible. Verse 4. 
but God. Oh, boy, that'll preach today. There may be things in your life right now that are just dead. There may be situations in your life that are the same as if they're dead because there's a, it's a condition in your body, it's, it's a condition in your finances, a condition in your family, that just there's no natural hope to overcome. That's the same as being dead. But God. But God. Romans chapter 4 talks about Abraham's faith. It said, And Abraham believed God, having considered, some translations said, or consider not, his age and the deadness of Sarah's womb. God had made a promise to him that through this woman he would be the father of many nations, and she was barren from the day she was born. And now he was too old. So they had two big problems that said this, this promise could never come about. And you may have a situation in your life that's like the deadness of Sarah's womb. It just never has produced anything. You may have a situation in your life that's like, you know, Abraham, you could do it, but you can't do it anymore. Because, you know, you're, just, you're worn out. There's no hope. These are all situations. In fact, it says earlier in that, it says, in hope against all hope. So you may have hopeless situations in your life right now. Hopeless in terms of what you can do. Hopeless in terms of what man can do. But God. Oh no, you can do better than that. But God. But God. Because what Abraham says in there, it says, as it is written, the father of many nations have I made you. God spoke, speaks the end from the beginning. God doesn't say, I'm going to make you. He says, as far as I'm concerned, I've already made you a father of many nations. And at that time, they were both, he was barren, she, was, she had a dead womb. God says, I don't care. As far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father of many nations. And it's not like God didn't understand what had to happen to produce a child. But the key is there, it says, in, in the sight of him, whom Abraham believed, even God, who gives life to the dead, who can raise the dead, and beyond that, calls things into existence that never existed before. Woo! That's the but God. So no one I was reading through that one day and it says, And Abraham considered his own body, and some translations say consider not, it doesn't mean it. The word in Greek actually means he stared right at it. God made a promise to him, you're going to be the father of many nations. And the two problems he's got is he's too old, and she's too old and she's barren. And Abraham stared right at that circumstances, and it didn't move him, because the, he knew that the God who made the promise to him can raise the dead. The God who made the promise to him can call things into existence that never existed before. And I was reading through that one day, and I said, all of a sudden, tell me, what difference does the condition of Sarah's body have to do with God's promise? When God can raise the dead, what does the medical report mean? What does the pathology report have to do with it? When God can raise the dead, what does the bank account say? What was the bill, unexpected bill mean? We're talking about God who can raise the dead. We're talking about God who can call things into existence that never existed before. But God, so I don't know what your situation is this morning. I don't know what the doctors told you. I don't know what the bank account's telling you. I don't know what your mind's telling you. I don't know what the devil's telling you. But God! But God! But God! 
But God. But God. But God. Some of you. But God. 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 Some of you need, some of you need to take. Maybe it's your checkbook. Maybe it's your bills. Maybe it's a doctor's report. I don't care what it is. You need to take whatever evidence is telling you what's going to happen because they talks to you. You need to take it and say, "Okay, I see it," but God. Devil, I hear everything you're saying, and I'm not going to argue with you. But I have one answer: it's two words. But God. Now, now, yeah. And you are living proof of that because you were dead. You and I were dead, spiritually dead, helpless, beyond hope. But God, who's rich, and who's But I don't know if, he, but God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. Now we've got some people on the earth that are, we consider rich because we're comparing them to what we have. So a Bill Gates, we consider rich because he's got enough money to basically do what he wants to do. But there's something all his money can't do. It can't make him alive unto God. Warren Buffett. One of the richest men in the country. It can't make him alive unto God. It can't. There's things God can do that no man can do, that no money can do. And 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 and, and if we think they're rich, if we think they're rich, if we think they're rich, but what's he rich in? He's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. The the God that you need to butt into your situation, He's rich in mercy. Because one of the things that will hold us back is say, "Yeah, but you don't know how my I'm in this mess because I messed up. I'm in this mess because I did something wrong. I, this is you know." And we have a kind of a, a, an expression we use. Well, you know, you got yourself into it. You got to get your you know. You need to live in the mess you got yourself into. But He's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. I wouldn't even plan to get into that because of because of that means motivated by nobody made God. Nobody can make God do anything. Your prayers don't move God. Your fasting doesn't move God. They help us receive, but they don't move God. You can't make God do anything. God did what He did for you. In fact, everything that exists, God chose to create. I never thought of that until I was reading a book a few weeks ago, and it's like, wow, what a powerful thought! The only reason anything exists is because God 
Sure. Now, it can mess it up once God created it. But the only reason you exist is because God wanted you. Nobody can force God to make something. And God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. There aren't other creators out there creating things and then God decides whether He likes them or not. Everything is created comes from Him. Your life comes from Him. And so what we're looking at, everything we're looking at, is motivated because of His great love with which He loved us. This is what we're studying. And what we're looking at is what we're about to look at was motivated by God's great love. His great love for us. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our, trans, in our trespasses, He made us alive. Now we're, gonna, we're talking about this love. Oh, verse 4, go back there. I want to read it in the Amplified. But God, so rich is He in His mercy, because of, listen carefully, and in order to satisfy the great and wonderful and intense love with which He loved us. And then it goes on to say it. Look at this. He's so rich in His mercy because of, listen carefully, and in order to satisfy the great and wonderful and intense love with which He loved us. You're here to satisfy a desire of God. You're alive to satisfy a desire of God. That's why He made you. That's why He saved you to satisfy His desire because of His love for you. So we don't have to talk God into anything. He's had to talk us into allowing Him to save us, to satisfy His love for us. Alright, now let's go into verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he, this is, See, this is where it didn't just make us alive. Verse 6 says, And He raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. So He didn't just save you out of hell. He's joined us to Christ. We're going to see that. And He's made us to sit up. To be, he's raised us up. I know you're sitting in a blue chair here in Seekonk this morning. But you're, I'm actually going to show you how this happened. But spiritually, God has raised you up and made you to sit together with Him in Christ. See, it's the in Christ that makes us possible. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Your spirit and Christ's spirit are one. They're joined together. So wherever His spirit is, that's where your spirit's connected. See, in the spirit, there's no distance. You can be sitting here in Seekonk, Massachusetts on July 3rd, 2016, but your spirit man is spiritually connected. It's not a temporal thing. It's spiritually connected to the, through the Holy Spirit to Jesus who's seated at the right hand. Now, this, the, I think I did this last week, but, but there's, here's the Father sitting here on the throne. And here's Jesus at the right hand, the position of authority and of honor. And as I told you, I used to think that I was seated 
14,372 miles down there, you know, because next to him was Paul, and next to him was Peter, and next to him were the good guys, you know, and I'm somewhere down there. Then it suddenly it dawned on me what he says, no, 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 you've got God the Father, and you've got God the Son, and you and I are seated in Christ next to the Father. We have been given a position of honor and of authority. I'm not going to have time to get into this morning. That is the same honor and authority that Christ has. Because after all, He's the head and we're the body. It's not just the head sitting on the... It's the body and the head sitting together. Okay. So that's where we're going with all this. Let's go over... To Romans chapter 8. If I had to have only one chapter out of the Bible, it would be this chapter. But we're going to start, it starts by talking about what we couldn't do for ourselves, God did for us in Christ. And he's, He's given us a new life in Him which is the life of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life that's in Christ Jesus. And now, then he talks about, we talked about this on Wednesday night, he talks about prayer in verse 26. He says, likewise, in the same way that you couldn't, you couldn't save yourself, and God did that through the Spirit, in the same way, when we pray, we don't know what to pray. But the Spirit's been given to us to help us, because He speaks the mysteries to God that we don't know how to speak for us. And then verse 28, which is the famous verse everybody quotes when they get in trouble, for we, for we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. All right, And that sets the stage because what we're about to look at is how much God loves you in terms of what He's done for you. And, and what I'm going to talk about is God's, we're going to look at a verse that says God's for you. I mean, I get it all done today. God's for you. And we're going to look at what that means according to what... God's telling. Because this book is given to us so that God can communicate to us what He wants us to know about Him. Everybody with me on that? All right. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Let's break that down. For whom He foreknew... That just means he knew ahead of time. He planned ahead of time for. He also predestined. Don't get hung up on that word in predestination. That just means planned ahead of time for. Invitations sent out. See, God knew you. If we went back to the beginning of chapter 1 of Ephesians, it says, and we've talked about that before, God, God saw you before the foundation of the world. In fact, he chose you before the foundation of the world. So if you're here this morning, He foreknew you. And the reason I know this is because for whom He foreknew, He predestined, planned ahead of time, that we would be conformed, that means changed to look like the image of His Son. So we're talking about when God saved you, His plan, because of the love of His heart, was not just to keep you from going to hell, and me too, because I'm in this also. But that was the beginning That was just the first step so we could do what he really wanted to do. And his real plan was that we would be conformed to the image of his son. 
And I used to read that and think what God's saying is, all right, I saved you, so you get your life in order so you look more like Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He wants us to look more like Jesus, but not, we're not to do that for ourselves, that we might be the firstborn, he might be, that his son, now before all this happened, he had only one son, his only begotten son, but after Christ is raised from the dead, he's no longer referred to as the only begotten son. He's referred to from then on as the firstborn of many brethren. So before he's raised from the dead, he's called the only begotten son of God. Once he's been raised from the dead, now there are other sons of, the God, of God through him. He's now referred to as the firstborn from the dead. Not the only one, but the firstborn from the dead. Because remember, we were dead. Okay, oh boy. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. You're here this morning. You're in Christ, if you are, because he called you. John chapter 15, Jesus told his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You're in the kingdom of God because he called you. You answered the call, but he initiated it. If he doesn't initiate it, no one's called. Now some people use this to just, I don't want to get into this dispute. Okay. Whom he called, he justified. There's a progression here. Whom he called, he justified. So we know that part. We know that, you know, all right, that I've been given the righteousness of God. Last year we studied the gospel. We found out the gospel, according to Romans 1.16, the, the gospel is God gave us a righteousness that, he, that Christ purchased for us. In fact, He gave us His own righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Christ died, took our sins, paid for them took the penalty, the wrath of God for those sins so that he could legally give to us his righteousness. Because if we don't have his righteousness, there's no way we can sit next to a holy, righteous God. And the part of you that he made righteous is your spirit man. Not your soul, that's still catching up. Everybody follow me so far? Okay, the proof he made you righteous, listen carefully, the proof to you that He's made you righteous, according to the Scripture, is He called you. If He didn't call you, you wouldn't be here. The fact that you're called to, called to Him means He justified you. Because whom He called, He justified. He didn't leave anybody out. And whom He justified, these He glorified. God's motive because of his love for you and me, was not just to keep us from going to hell, because he had pity on us. The very creation in the beginning, God created this earth, and then he created the garden, and he put, created the man, and then out of him the woman, and put them in the garden so that he could have a relationship with him. That he could have a relationship with him. And the implication in chapter 3 is that he would come and walk in, with them and talk with them in the garden face to face. And then sin created this huge gap in separation 
And everything from Genesis 3 on, 15 on, is God's effort to restore back what he had in the very beginning because that was his heart in creation. You say, well, why would God create this, want this? Did he know? Was he surprised? Well, God's not surprised by anything because God knows everything all at once. Then why would God do that? I remember having a law partner when I was in Tulsa asked me this question because he, he knew what I was a Christian. He said, well, why would, why would God create man knowing ahead of time that he was going to sin and create this break? I said, because otherwise the love we give back to him doesn't mean anything. If we love him because we have to, because we're forced to, then it doesn't mean anything. So God had to give man a free will so that as an act of that free will we could choose him and he loved you and me so much he was willing to risk our making the wrong choice because the right choice was so valuable to him that he didn't want just a bunch of automatons. He didn't want just a bunch of robots. He didn't want a bunch of yes men. He wanted people that would come to him out of love. And everything God wants from us is to, be, to come to us. That's the only reason I was upset at Israel. The only thing he ever acquired from Israel with all the details and laws and things like that is he wanted them to love him the way he loved them. And that's all he wants from us. And so he loved us. His motive was not just to have us saved, but to make us righteous. But he needed to make us righteous. His goal wasn't just to make us righteous so he could look at how righteous he's made us. Because we have to be righteous before we can be his child. And in his presence. But we stop so far short of that. The church stops so far short of that. I'm going to start this. Let's go. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? They should be... Paul's going through all this because it had, ought to have an impact on this. What does this tell us about God? Look what He's done for us. Out of love for us. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now what I want to... Today this morning, and we're going to just get into it, so we'll have to go over this again next time. It's like, no, 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 go back to 31, don't change until I tell you to. Thank you. Good. Great. You're doing great. If God is for us, remember we talked for several weeks about if God so loved the world, what does that little word so mean? What does this little word for mean? God is for us. Well, it's very common in election year, I won't get into this one, to say, who are you for? And some people are passionate about who they're for, to the point that they'll give lots of money, they'll give of their time and volunteer, they'll walk around with crazy stickers on them and badges and hats, you know, we, you know who they're for, but others just, well, I don't know, I guess I'm for so-and-so. Or, or in, the, in, the, you know, in, the, in the World Series, who are you for? Well, if the Red Sox are in it, we know there's some of us in here that, you know, people go around wearing, you, you know who they're for because they're wearing Red Sox jackets and hats and, you know, it's obvious. But then there are others that don't really care so much about baseball. But, you know, when you get to a, a, a major event like that, ah, I guess I'm for this team. So the question is, what does for mean here? How for us is God? And that's what he's talked about. That's what he's just defined. This is how for us God is. While we were yet sinners, God died for us. 
We've seen in, in, in Romans 8, 28, that God's working all things together for our good. That's how far for us He is. This progression we've just gone through, that, that while we were sinners, He gave His Son's life to pay for our sins so that He might legally give His Son's righteousness to us. And He gave His Son's righteousness to us so that we might be holy and without blame before Him, Ephesians 1, 3 so that we can be holy and blame before Him, so that we could be conformed to the image of His Son, so we could be sons and daughters of the living God. I quoted from you last a couple of weeks ago, from I think it's Ephesians, Hebrews 2, early on, it says, because of this, Christ, listen carefully, Christ is not ashamed to be called your brother. That's how much God's for you. But I want to read something to you that I was studying this out and I, I ran across a quote from Matthew Henry. And I think they're going to be able to put it up on the screen. I've got to find it over here. And then I won't have time today to go through and break it down. I'm just going to read this to you. Now, is there first... There's, a, there's an earlier one. It starts out, I think, this includes all that God is for us. Yeah, there we go. This is from Matthew Henry's talking about this verse. He's a, great, a commentator from about 100 years ago. This includes all that God is for us. Not only reconciled us to Him. He's not only reconciled us. And by that, He doesn't mean He's just not against us. He's, 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 so he's not against us. In other words, it's not that He's just not against us. He's for us. He's not passive. He's for us. He's in covenant with us. He's so engaged for us, listen carefully, that all of His attributes are for us, all of His promises are for us, all that He is, all that He has, all that He does is for His people. He performs all things that He does for them. He is for them even when it seems to act. That may not come up on there. He is for them even when it seems to act against us so as to prevail against us. And if so, who can be against us so as to prevail against us, so as to hinder our happiness? Be there ever so great, ever so strong, ever so many, ever so mighty, ever so malicious. What can they do? He's talking about what Satan can do. While God is for us, and we keep in His love, we may with holy boldness defy all the powers of darkness. I want to read you again. God, listen to this, He's not only reconciled us to Himself, so He's not angry, it's not that He's just not angry at us, but He's for us. He's in covenant with us. That means He's legally bound to take care of us and do whatever we need. He's so engaged with us that all of His attributes, we're going to talk about that probably next time, all of His attributes, all of His divine attributes are directed towards us. All of His promises are towards us. All that He is, all that He has, just think about what that could mean. All that He does is for His people. In other words, all of God's attention, God, all of His attention, all of His heart, all of His energies, all of His mind is directed 
towards you and me. Why? Because God so loves us. Several places in the Bible says, if you say you love somebody and they have a need and you withhold the means to meet those needs from them, that's not love. That applies to God too. How can God expect something of us He doesn't do? Love has to act. This kind of love. This foreign kind of love. Think about everything God is. All-knowing. All-powerful. All-love. All that He is, all that He has, is directed for your benefit. Because He loves you. We're going to have to pick up here next time. And we'll begin to take this apart. But I wanted to at least get this in front of you. For those of you interested, that's Matthew Henry's single edition of, the, of, a, of his commentary for this verse, Romans 8.31. God is for you.